All right, let's go ahead and get started. I think we need some more copies of handouts, so uh, if we have someone who knows how to use the machine, I think maybe five or six more will do it for us. Uh, it's great to see so many out here tonight. I'm excited to preach this message to you tonight as we look at Psalm 72. It is a messianic psalm, and it has such great hope for us, and I've entitled this message, The King of Kings. And so I want us to turn to Psalm 72. And uh, we're going to look at the whole psalm this evening. And um, as we begin, I, I want to, I'm just going to, I look for different illustrations and, and ideas to help us draw us into the text. And in my studies this week, Steve Lawson's commentary, excellent commentary on the psalms. Uh, if you want a commentary that will help you understand the Psalms, each, each chapter on the Psalm is about five, a five-minute read. Um, if, you're, if you're a slower reader, eight minutes, and you can just get an overview on the whole Psalm, and it's worth its weight in gold. And he gives this illustration on Psalm 72. He says, imagine you're walking on a plain, and two mountaintops tower before you. One is immediately before you, close and near, and the other looms in the horizon, appearing much smaller. But as you approach both mountains, you realize the second peak is not smaller, but is immensely larger. In fact, it towers over the first, making, it look, making the first one look puny and small. That's what we see happening in Psalm 72 where we see Solomon, the king of Israel, who is being uh, crowned king, and this is a coronation psalm. But as we look at the psalm, we will soon realize we're talking about someone much more important and much more grand than, than King Solomon. This is all about the Messiah's reign. Now, we know the Messiah who has been revealed to us in the New Testament as Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he will overshadow Solomon's reign. Obviously, he overshadows Solomon. We know Solomon started off real great, didn't he? And then the end of his life, he didn't finish all that well. But he's, Christ certainly towers over Solomon. And his kingship will look puny. Solomon's kingship will look puny in comparisons to Christ. So we're looking at the King of Kings in this psalm. And the superscription of the psalm just simply says, A Psalm of Solomon. Scholars believe it was not only written by Solomon, but they believe it was written for Solomon on the day of his succession to the throne of his father David. It was to be then a coronation psalm by Solomon, for Solomon, but not only for Solomon. For every king who sat on the throne in Jerusalem until the exile. The first four verses are just about Solomon's reign, and we see them uh, here in the psalm. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. You will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people he will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. And so this is 
exclusively about Solomon, or you could just put in Israel's kings. And what you're seeing is a request that's really understandable by Solomon. Now, this, if, if, if this psalm is written for his coronation, this is before the vision that Solomon has where God says you can ask for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And so already you have Solomon making a request in a psalm to God that God would give him wise judgment and wisdom and righteousness and government. And so that's, that's the request. Lord, grant me judgment, wisdom in deciding a case. And give me your righteousness. And that word righteousness speaks of righteousness and government. So that Solomon would rule over God's people in a godly and proper way. Now this request is answered in 1 Kings 3, 4-9, through 9, which is where Solomon is asleep and God comes to him in a vision and says, Solomon, Solomon, ask of anything, ask anything of me and I will give it to you. Solomon asked for wisdom. And God says, because you have asked for a good thing, I will give you everything else that you could have asked for. Wealth and uh, power and military might and peace. And so we see that Solomon asked for the best thing. Another fulfillment of this prophecy, of this prayer, would be where uh, two women have children. The one woman rolls on top of the child and it it dies in its sleep and she steals her friend's child. And it, they, she, they, they go to the courts and it rises all the way to the Supreme Court of the land, which is King Solomon. And he decides he'll just cut the child in half and give each woman a half. And of course, you know, the one woman was all for that judgment because if she lost her child, the other woman should lose hers as well. And the real mother says, no, give her the child. Just don't take its life. And Solomon said, ah, there's the true mother. And that wisdom went through all the land and amazed the whole country. The reason Solomon makes his request is that if he has God's judgments and he has God's righteousness in ruling over the government, then he will judge God's people with righteousness and he'll make sure he's caring for the poor. The poor were those who were often neglected. Now I want you to see how Solomon describes those who are poor. He will judge your people with righteousness. That makes sense, but look what he says. And your poor with justice. There is not one person who belongs to the nation of Israel that Solomon would say is mine. Every single person belongs to God. They are under God's care. And so when we have people running around talking about their responsibility over people, and they start talking about people like they are just numbers, they're forgetting the very fact that these are people with souls whom God has counted and that they will be accountable for. And so Solomon is very wise. He he says that the king will treat the poor as they truly are, God's poor people. And the king will bring about justice. And that word justice speaks of the king acting as God would act before the people, without partiality. 
So that means if a poor person comes in the court with a problem against a rich person, the king's not going to favor the rich person just because they're rich or powerful. And he's not going to favor the poor person just because they're poor. He's going to look at the issue and he is going to say what is right according to God's judgments, his wisdom, and righteousness. Now it is so fitting that, we put, that this psalm was put right after Psalm 71 because we just looked at the righteousness of God. And so that is, we, we have to keep that as a foundation as we move forward. But here is Solomon pointing us to the God who would give him wisdom and judgments. And, and he's already pointing us towards Jesus. For when he comes to rule the earth, we are told in Isaiah 9, 7, that the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with what? Judgment. And justice from that time forward, even forever. And so you have those same elements right here in the psalm that Isaiah will use later on, several years later on, to speak of the coming king. So isn't it amazing that the Holy Spirit, He's not disjointed, He's not trying to make it up as He goes. He brings out a unified message. You have two different prophets, basically. Two different men who are speaking of a Messiah who will come. And they are different men, different personalities, different time, different circumstances, different situations. One message about one king who will rule. And that is so important for us to keep in mind. Now verse 3 is rather interesting. When I do my studies and I read through, I read through the text several times and there are verses that I will just... Take my highlighter and I will circle the number of the verse and say, I need to know what's going on here. It doesn't make any sense to me. Let me look at it. How would you interpret this? The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. What is that supposed to mean? Mountains and little hills? What's going on? Well, remember what you're dealing with. You're dealing with poetry. You're dealing with Hebrew poetry. You're dealing with imagery. Mountains don't move. Mountains don't rule. Mountains are there as an intimidating force. They are powerful. They are big. But they're just there. They don't speak with righteousness or justice or power or, or any of that stuff. So what does it mean the mountains will bring peace to the people? And the little hills... By righteousness. How do, the, how do the mountains and little hills bring peace by righteousness? Well, I think what we're seeing here is that Solomon is saying peace is going to come to people through the king's righteous judgments. And he is saying it's coming to the mountains, the big, powerful, mighty, the king, the nobles, the, the wealthy, the, the strong. And it's coming to the little hills, the poor, and the weak, and the insignificant. Peace will come to all. Because as you look at this, you're looking at a God who is ruling through His King, who is using the, king, the Lord's judgment, not the world's judgment. Steve Lawson says that the mountains represent the most dominant aspects of the kingdom, and the hills represents the little parts. But both will know peace and a sense of prosperity. If the king reigned in righteousness, blessings would result for everyone under his rule. 
You want to know how you are living in a righteous government? The blessings are distributed properly and justly and with equity. You want to know how you're living in an unjust government? They take what they want. They legalize theft. This morning in my history book, Bad Days in History, this day, 200 years ago, Karl Marx published his idea of the Communist Manifesto. And that was an idea that needed to stay an idea. That brought terror. It's brought terror to our world, especially in the 20th century. It's not equity. It's not wisdom. It's not justice. No, you steal from those who are under you to make yourself mighty and wealthy and powerful. But not so in God's system. The mighty and the small, what do they have? Blessings and peace because there's righteousness. Really what you see here in Psalm 72 is as government should be. This is how a nation should be ruled. Again, you see the messianic theme in, in Isaiah 9.6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a Savior is given, and now you have the, the typology here of the, of the prophecy. <coughs> Excuse me. And we have the first part that we speak of at Christmas time, right? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And now we're waiting for the, not, the last part of the verse. Right? We're waiting for this. That the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Every one of those titles is a title of God, or a, an attribute of God. And so we wait for Christ to come and to place the government on His shoulders. The righteous King will bring that justice to the poor. If you look in verse 4, justice to the poor is coming, and when the King sees that there is injustice coming, that the injustice comes from the, oppress, the oppressor coming on the, on the poor, the King steps in, and He will break them into pieces. That's just a really kind way of saying he crushes them. Not because he wants to favor the poor, but because the oppressor is oppressing unjustly. He is, the word oppressor speaks of a tyrant who extorts people with, with a cruel un, injustice. I mean, you can look at our, at our history. You see all kinds of things happening. You see things happening in our world right now where there are tyrants uh, crushing their people with cruel injustice. And they think they're getting away with it because they're powerful. But nothing escapes the gaze of our God. And so I will say again, Psalm 72, if you look at this, the first four verses, we pray, this is how we pray for our government. You see this? We pray that our government has God's judgments, wisdom to judge against the case, that they would do things with equity and justice and righteousness, that they would rule as God would have them rule. Remember, the government is God's servant. I think I said this uh, last week that you know, people talk about the separation of church and state, but there is no separation between, church, between state and God. The state is God's servant. And when the state seeks to exhibit its own power, 
They are running rogue. And God will bring them into account. And so we see how government is supposed to work here in Psalm 72. And so justice and equity and righteousness are the principles that are to be pursued. So this is what we pray for. Dear Christians, when you pray for your government, this is how you pray for them. Yes, we pray that they repent of their sin. Yes, we pray that they become a Christian because unless they have their eyes open, they cannot truly see the truth of these principles. But we still pray that God would have mercy on our government and that they would rule this way. We set our compass as Christians. We set our compass by God's person, character, and attributes. And one of the greatest misconceptions in our world is that we can come to church and we can get a little something for the soul and that'll get us through until next week as if you're just filling up your soul with like you fill up your car's gas tank. No, that's not the way that we work on this. Your soul is not a gas tank. Your soul is a branch. And if you separate your soul from the vine, you die. And so we have to see that we are setting our compass by God's principles and His standards. We are tied into Him. We have Him light our way. Psalm 119.105, Your word is a light to my path and a lamp unto my feet. So often, people get into positions of government and what do they start doing? They start putting their plan into place. Well, my plan was better than his plan or her plan and I'm going to do my thing and I'm going to prove I'm smarter than everybody else. And they go after their ideas and thoughts rather than being the servants that God has called them to be in Romans 13. And so you and I should be praying for rulers and in our case, presidents and Congress, and justices who would seek to be men and women who are like Psalm 72. So we see Solomon here, and then we're going to go through this next point very quickly. I'm calling this synergy. It's, you're, you're going to see the two working together in this. Solomon is seen, and so is the Messiah. And they're, they're held up next to each other, and there is a common working in verses 5 through 7. They shall fear you. Look at, look at the, the word you. It is capitalized. Well, why will they fear the Messiah? Why will they fear God? Because Solomon is acting out verses 1 through 4. And isn't it amazing in the book of 1 Kings that when Solomon acts out as he should in, in Psalm 72, 1 through 4, that Israel has great peace, there's prosperity. But as soon as Solomon starts dabbling in all the stuff he's not supposed to, trouble comes. And even his own son strays. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace until the moon is no more. So we've got shadows here of the millennial kingdom. Uh, we, we, could, we, we could look at this and say, well, obviously there's fulfillment here that's going to come in the end times. Absolutely. But there's also an element of where Solomon is the one who is leading this and people are, are going to be led towards God because of Solomon's faithfulness in verses 1 through 4. 
And so through a king's righteous ruling, the people come to fear God. Not everybody wants a righteous ruling, do they? We've got people who are lobbying for all kinds of stuff. All kinds of wickedness. We've got people lobbying for all kinds of good things too. I mean, we, you know, there is a positive side of lobbying. But here's what I want you to see. This is not about the king. This is not about what we would call our president or our government. This is about the one who stands over all of it. And the government's job as a servant of God is to get people to look beyond themselves and to see God. See the righteousness and the justice and the equity and and the wisdom and the judgments that are brought out. And it's to point them to the truth of God. There's a reason why the Ten Commandments, whether they're written and code and codified into the law, or whether they're just assumed to be true in every society. Why is that? Because it's written on our very hearts as image bearers of God. And so government is to point people to God. That sounds crazy in our world, doesn't it? It's not happening at all, it would seem. And yet, I will tell you that not everything is lost. We, when a government rules in righteousness, God brings blessing. Now, people will say, well, our government has been going down the tubes for it. They'll put a number on it. And I'll caution you in doing that. Because there's no such thing as a Christian government. There's no nation that is ruling by Scripture. Now, Christian principles? Yeah, I think you can find them. But the only real true government that will be ruled by God is when it is what? Ruled by God. And so don't be running around thinking that we're going to bring in some sort of utopia. They've tried that a few times. They've all failed miserably. Why? The only one who can do that is God Himself. So we are just supposed to do what? Judge rightly. Pursue wisdom and righteousness. That equity would be brought about. That those who are oppressed would be rescued. That those who are the oppressor would be judged and brought to justice. And so when a government rules in righteousness, God brings blessing. And the blessing that is spoken of here is seen as raindrops of dew on the grass before it is cut, before the harvest. Remember, you're, you're in an agrarian society. The way in which you lived was making sure your crops were good that year. You do everything you could to keep your crops good. And so God would bring blessing by bringing the rain and the dew for a good crop that you would be provided for. Then you start looking towards a millennial reign. In the millennium kingdom, when Solomon states that during the Messiah's days, when you see that right here in verse 7, in His days, well... We're in Solomon's days. Every day belongs to the Lord, absolutely. But we're talking about the days when when the the Messiah will reign on earth. And so, we're looking now more at the Messiah than we are at Solomon. In his days, the righteous shall flourish. Why is that? Because we don't know government until we'll see government run by Christ. 
and it will be righteous and just and proper and good and pure. And there will be an abundance of peace. And Solomon says, until the moon is no more. That's just another, that's a poetic way of saying, until the end of time. And so until that last day in the millennial kingdom before God takes us into glory, and it will continue even then, God will be righteous and just and perfect. Looking forward to the New Testament, we see that this peace that Solomon speaks of not only comes through the Messiah, but the Messiah Himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace. I remember as a kid... I don't know why we watched them. Maybe my sister wanted to watch them, but the Miss America pageant would be on, and you know these little girls would get up there, and they would say, well, what would you like to see happen in your lifetime? And they all said what? World peace. And they never really had much to say after that. I think it was just sort of the Barbie doll response you get. You ever ask someone, well, how would you pursue world peace? You ever ask someone that? I have. They don't know what to say. You want to know why? They've never given it another thought. It's just this idea they'll throw out, well, yeah, I want everyone to get along and be happy and just nicey-nice. You will never have world peace until you have the peace of God as He has given it through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. So if you want world peace, you know what you need to have? You have a bunch of people, whole world, who believes in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Will there ever be a day like that? Well, the Bible says there will be. It's coming. It's not yet that day, though, is it? And so, we do not use the weapons of the world to bring about world peace. Now, there may be time for war. When you have wicked men who are oppressing those who are are being just taken advantage of, and you may have to go to their aid, and you may have to go to war. And there are verses in the Bible that would give approval to that in certain cases, but you better make sure your war is just. We don't use the weapons of the world to pursue peace. No, our peace is in Jesus Christ. And so it is Him we preach to bring every man a perfect man, a mature man, that Christ would be their Lord. So we've seen Solomon in the synergy. Now we're going to look at the sovereignty. And I've got three different headings under the sovereignty of Jesus. And in verses 8 through 11, you see the whole world is paying homage to Jesus. The rest of this psalm is all about the millennial kingdom. In verses 8 through 11, Solomon writes, he shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him and all nations shall serve him. You see the homage here. And so Solomon's desire is just to be a shadow of the great king who is to come. The one who will have dominion and rule over the whole earth. And the way he describes this is from sea to sea. So you've got the 
Mediterranean there, and then you've got the, the, the seas on the other side. He's talking about everything. And then, oh, what about the river? The river to the ends of the earth. Well, the river is the Euphrates River. And the river is used in 1 Kings 21 and 24 to describe boundary markers in Solomon's kingdom in Israel. And it's just the river. Well, we know that is a reference to the Euphrates. And so therefore, we're talking about the Euphrates River here. And, and here's what Solomon is doing. He's just using simple landmarks to say, everything is under the domain and the dominion of this coming king. So mighty is the king of kings that he finds even those who live in the barren places, the wilderness. They will go out to the, to the deserts and the mountains and they'll try to find little cracks in the rock and hide. But they will not escape him. I was talking to my children this morning as we were doing Bible, and I forget what the verse we were talking about was, but one of them asked about um, people who try to get away from God in the last day. I said, well, read Isaiah. Read Isaiah too. And Isaiah says, go ahead, run for the hills. Try to find the rocks. They even say, let, let the mountains fall on us. Why? Here comes the king in his glory and his power who is coming for you and you are a rebel of him. And so they will not escape him. In fact, they will bow down before him, and they will lick the dust. Well, that's a term we don't hear in our day. That's a, that's a figure of speech that means you're flat on your face. You, your nose is on the ground, your chin is on the ground, and you are bowing in humiliation before a conquering king. You've lost the fight. And so there is no one who will stand in opposition to him. The point that Solomon is making here is that there is no one outside of the sovereign rule of the Messiah. And so just as people brought these gifts to Solomon, now he doesn't know that's going to happen. This is just a connection here. They brought these gifts to Solomon like Queen Sheba does and 1 Kings 10, the whole world will bring gifts to the Messiah. All kings, when they come, they will bow before Christ and they will serve Him. You see this theme in the Old and the New Testament. Psalm 86, 9, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. One of the glorious passages of the New Testament is Philippians 2, 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those of earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, in heaven, worship is centered upon the person of Jesus Christ. And these kings it will not be any different for them in the millennial kingdom. Look, I, I know it's hard at times to live under wicked and unjust rulers. I get that. There's a tension there. Because you and I, we know better. We know a better way. But who has put them in that position? Sometimes it's hard to say that, isn't it? You want to know how we know our, judge, our, our, our country's in judgment? Just look at the government we have. Look at the things that our government is pushing and trying to get us to do. 
John Calvin makes a wonderful statement. He says, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. Well, you want to know, in America, we have wicked rulers. You want to know what we deserve? The wicked rulers. Now, whether or not you think you really elected them or not, guess what? God will use even broken means to bring about judgment on a country. And we deserve judgment. But there are bright spots. Did you catch the news yesterday about what took place in Alabama? Anyone catch that? They went and put it into law that the unborn child is covered by all of the same rights that a full-grown adult is covered by. Justice and equity for the poor. There is no one who is more poor and needy than an unborn child. And Alabama got it right. Now I'm sure the lawsuits will come in hot and fierce. But yesterday was good news. You could go, ah, that's wonderful to hear that there are people who care about God's poor, about God's weak. And so we wait for God and His timing. Now, do I think it's ever going to change and America's going to be some Christian utopia? Um, probably not. I'm not going to be a Debbie Downer, but I am going to tell you to prepare yourself for hardship. Well, many of us here will be gone in the next 20 years, 30 years. Prepare your children and your grandchildren. I know, what a morbid thought, right? Thanks, Pastor, for reminding us of all of that. But it's true! And so we are to live as dying men serving dying men or women because the day of death is coming. And you don't know when it is. Look, we've had our fair share of death in the past five years and not everyone has been young. Or have been old, I mean. Some of them have been young. And so you're not guaranteed to live into your 90. You're not guaranteed to live into your 60. And so we need to have, live life with urgency. But we wait for God to bring His government. And here's what we know. When His government comes, He makes all things right and good. And we will not look back on that and say, no, He didn't do that well. I think I would have done it better. No, you wouldn't have. You will look back and you'll go, oh, wow. I would have never thought to do that. I couldn't have ever conceived of that. No, God is so great. And so, all men will come and they will pay homage to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in the Millennial Kingdom. So we've seen the homage paid to God's sovereignty. Now we're going to see the gracious help that He gives in verses 12 through 16. I just want to summarize this a little bit where Solomon says that God will deliver the needy when He cries and the poor... He will, that he will be helped when he has no helper. So, so here's the idea that you're seeing. God is sovereign over everything. He knows what's going on, and he comes to the aid of those who call upon him. When there is true injustice that takes place, the king of kings shows up and flexes his muscle, and he raises his scepter, and true judgment is brought. And so you see that when the, the true injustice takes place, the Almighty God 
will rule with justice. And what's amazing to remember is the full weight of His holiness will be felt with the ruling. And no one is going to walk away being able to criticize the ruling. Now I don't want you to get me wrong here. Not everyone, even in the Millennial Kingdom, is going to agree with what Jesus does. We know that. The Bible tells us that. Read Revelation 19 and 20. They may not like it, but they won't be able to argue against it. I liken this to someone who comes to me and they want to justify what they're doing. They know what they're doing is not right. They know what the Bible says. Uh, they know the Bible says they're not allowed to do this. And so they come to the pastor and they say, hey, I've had this brilliant thought. This happens more than you would ever imagine. I've had this brilliant thought. What do you think if, I know the Bible says this, but what do you think about me doing that? And sometimes I just have to just remind myself, be kind and gracious. They're acting like fools and they need to be brought back into a recognition of who is in charge. But I don't always do that. Sometimes I just get right to it. Who are we to say that we can live however we want? No, if the Bible says this, it's pretty clear, right? And so we, we think that we can play these games and say, well, no, I, can, I, think, I think this is okay. I was having a conversation with Maddie this week, and she was asking me how things are going, and I said, it's been, it's been a week. I told her that Tuesday at 1220. She goes, that doesn't sound good. I said, no. She goes, what's wrong? So I told her, I said, listen, there's this little thing called the Bible, and if people would just do what it says, my life would be so easy. But it doesn't happen that way, does it? And so we, we know that there will be people who do not like the justice. So and just, as if, just as when I will tell someone, no, that, that doesn't work. That doesn't pass the test. It, it has to be this, because this is what God's Word says. Not because I say it. Who am I? I'm just, I'm just like anybody else. But God's Word is spoken. So we have to what? Obey. And they oftentimes walk out of my office with their tail between their legs, go, okay, I guess, and then they don't change. Right? They don't do what they're supposed to do because they don't want to. Well, there's going to be people in the millennium just like that. Not, not as many of them as there are now, but they're going to hold their peace because they know they can't argue against the ruling. They just don't like it. There will be, by the way, a rebellion led by the devil. You know that, right? will be a rebellion at the end of the millennium but it's going to be as if God picks up Mount Everest and squashes a gnat with it it will not do anything it, it will be put out so fast and so quick it will be a laughable rebellion and it's led by the most powerful being that is on the earth at this point apart from God and it does nothing so we are to submit to God and trust in Him. Because of the supernatural and perfect reign of Jesus Christ, the wealth of the world will be given to Him. Worship takes place. They come and they don't worship at a temple. Where do they worship? At Christ. Prayer is an act of worship in Israel. You see that here as 
you read through to verse 16. And they're daily praying. And there's daily praise. That is what moves so many, this help is what moves so many to worship the Messiah on His throne. Now I want to bring out a few thoughts here for you. We may look at a promise of a better kingdom and we may just long for it so badly right now. I mean, we should. We're Christians. We want our king to be on the throne here on earth. We know he is in heaven. We want him to be here on earth. But let's recognize two important truths. Two very important things. Number one, that day is coming. And let that truth just wash over you and comfort you. You know that Christ is going to rule better than a Democrat, right? He's going to rule better than the Republicans. He's going to rule better than the Independents. And he'll rule better than you. you ever play that game? Well, if I was a president, I would. I played that about five times and I started thinking about what the president does and I don't want nothing to do with it. That day's coming. Take hope in that truth. But second, and this is what we have to get to and have to remind ourselves, God is in heaven. He sees all things. And he's working out his perfect plan now. And every moment of every day is another domino that's falling to bring about the return of Christ. So this has to happen. And this has to happen. And this has to happen. I don't want these things to happen. But they have to happen. And on the end, over here, when this happens, and Christ reigns and he returns, we go, okay. That I want. And so we trust God as He reigns from His throne in glory. Do not let your faith waver because Christ has not yet come. We know He is coming. In the same way, we don't despair because all is not yet right. Well, we live in a fallen world that is plagued with sin. But we wait for the day when the curse is reversed. Finally, we see the honor in verses 17 through 20. Listen to what Solomon says about this Messiah. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall, call, shall be blessed in him, and nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be His glorious name forever and let the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and amen. We've only got a few moments here, but I want to show you what Solomon does. Names are representative of the person in the Bible. And so when he says that the, His name shall endure forever and ever, he is saying that His person will endure forever and ever. Men are blessed by the Messiah. And men will then in turn call Him blessed. A shadow of this would be Mary when she finds she is carrying the incarnate Son of God where she says that all generations will call me blessed. But you know, we, we tend to, to forget the first part. God has taken note of the lowly state of His maidservant. God bless Mary. And she in turn... Bless God. When we drill down to this concept, 
the whole concept of this section, what we're seeing is that the Messiah is honored not because of only what he has done, although that's part of it, it's because of who he is. God deserves worship for who he is. What he does points us back to who he is. And we worship him for who he is. Yes, God does wondrous things, but he does those wondrous things because of who he is. Wonderful. And so we have to remember that. Now, I want you to look in verse 18. Where he says, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. Look at those, those, those words back to back. Lord God. Now, we use those terms, Lord God, in our culture, and we just move right on. Here's what Solomon says in Hebrew. Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. He's invoking the promises that God has made with Israel to what? To redeem His people and to bring a Messiah through. So yes, it makes sense to invoke the name of Yahweh because we're speaking of that Messiah that Yahweh will bring through. But also Elohim, the living God. The God who is three in one. And so Solomon is speaking of the name of this Messiah and he doubles down with Yahweh Elohim. Oh, what a wonderful truth that this is why God is praised because of who He is, the covenant God. We have a covenant with God as well in the new covenant. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And in that covenant, listen very carefully, in the old covenant, God did everything to invoke the covenant. Abraham didn't walk through the, the severed animals to enact the covenant. There was no blood that was placed upon Abraham. It was all placed upon God. God is telling Abraham, I will do everything. In the new covenant, with the shedding of the blood of the Lamb, God is saying this, I will do everything. You come through faith, and I will do everything. And I will lead you home through this Son, Jesus Christ. Steve Lawson says, The glorious reign portrayed in this psalm points to the future kingdom of Christ, a reign far greater than the rule of Solomon. In the last day, Christ will govern the entire world. I don't know if he was thinking of this psalm or not when he wrote this, the hymn, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun but Isaac Watts wrote these words, and I think it psalm goes beautifully with, this, with this, this hymn. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. It's a beautiful line there. Till the moon shall wax and wane no more. You realize there's going to be a time where there's no more sun, there's no more moon, the light source is God Himself. And He shall reign even then. Solomon desired to be a good king. And so he dwells upon the king of kings who will reign over the whole earth during that millennial kingdom. Thousand year reign. We have His name revealed to us in the New Testament. Jesus of Nazareth. Now obviously, my interpretation of the end times has come through pretty strong tonight. Not everyone would hold to that. 
But here's what we know. Jesus Christ is coming again. And we wait for him. So I've given you the application on the back of your sheet. I, I do want to see if we have any questions or if we want to have any conversation. I've got a few more things that we could talk about. But I want to see if you have any thoughts or questions before we move on. All right, so let me, let me, let's, let's, let's play a little game here. And this is a game of hypothetical. It won't be the case, but I just want you to get, I wanted to get your, your juices flowing here. When Christ comes in his glory and the government is established, how does he rule? How does he come into power? What happens? Do we need to have a quick crash course on Revelation 19? <laughs> when Christ comes, what happens? The enemies are what? They're gone. They're slaughtered. Not with the sword of his hand, but the sword of his mouth. And so there is no opposition. Now, here's what's interesting. As we enter into the millennial kingdom, there are people who have not yet died and that they will live, and you will have people in the procreating in the millennial kingdom. This is not heaven. Not heaven, but they are all believers. And through time, they will still have to have their children who come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and they can sin, and they can do wickedness, but it will be few and far between. What happens if someone decides to get the idea, hey, you know what, I don't like the way this Jesus guy is doing something. I'm going to hold an election and see if I can take him out of his office. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, huh? But what would happen? Let's just say the election happens. What, what's going to happen? David? Well, there will be time where there will still be sinners who will be born and they will continue. There will be few of them, but there, there will be time for them to pop their, pop their heads up. What would happen in that election? One vote, yeah, right? <laughs> it would be a landslide. Why? Because Jesus is doing it so perfect. Even his enemies would have to say, well, I mean, can't really vote against them. And so we, we would see, well, that doesn't make any sense, right? Why would you try to oppose him? Or, or some people would think, well, what about a military coup? Well, first of all, you're not going to plan anything apart from his knowledge because he's all-knowing. Uh, but it... When it got out there, the loyal people of Christ would go and they would put that uprising to death. Why? Because their Lord is a good Lord and a kind Lord. And He helps them and He is all in their favor. All the other ideas, well, you know, like today I mentioned, you know, it's the unfortunate anniversary of the Communist Manifesto. Someone writes something like that and they publish it. What about this idea? Hey, get laughed out of Jerusalem. Do you not see what's happening here? Are you out of your mind? That is how just and righteous and good the rule of Christ will be. That even those who disagree with him will have to look and say, I can't do it better. 
And so we need to start thinking like this. That, that we need to start getting in that mindset now. You know what? We're not waiting for the millennium for God to do it better than us. You know what? He's doing it better than us right now. He's not asking for your vote. He's not waiting for you to cast your vote in favor of what he's doing. He's commanding you trust him. You're not going to be able to rest out of his fingertips any kind of power, any kind of control. You're going to follow in the path that he leads. And it's either going to be with blessing or it's going to be with discipline. And so we have to come to that point where I just, I, I laid that out. If it felt like a trap, it was supposed to feel that way. But I laid that out so that you would recognize we're not just waiting to trust God then. It's now. We need him every step and every moment right now, today. And I hope that's where you will find yourself. And if you need help getting there, please reach out. Talk to myself or Pastor Chris or one of the elders. We don't have every answer, believe it or not. But God's word does. And that's where we'll take you. Let's go ahead and close in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed of prayer. Fathers, to close tonight, I simply want to be thankful for the brilliance of your plan, that you have thought everything through, that there is nothing that you have not considered, there is nothing that you have not accounted for, there is not one rogue molecule anywhere in this universe. But you are sovereign over everything. That comforts my heart tonight. Because not everything in life is easy. And, and not everything in life is good. But Lord, your yoke is easy. And you are good. And we trust that in the end, we will reap that which has been sown in Christ, that of faith. And so, Lord, I ask that you would move in the hearts of those who are here tonight and where we need to grow in faith, that you would lovingly, kindly move us in that direction, whether it be as a, as a man to lead his family, as a wife to, to submit and help her husband, as a student who is struggling with school or... Uh, whether it be something at work where we have a relationship with someone that is difficult or just the work itself is miserable, whether it be a neighbor who, who seems to be a thorn in our side, whatever that may be, that we would look to you for hope and trust, waiting for the day in which you make all things right. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.